Yo, technology, what is it all about? Well, I actually think that we're going to get to a future where you're going to disaggregate the business model of the battery from the car body. And after 10 years, you're going to hold on to your battery pack and just substitute out a newer, shinier You're going to hold on to the battery rather than the car. Does the customer actually care what happens inside that battery? Absolutely not. They just want it to work, but they care about how the steering wheel looks. They care right. about how the yeah, seats yeah, look. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, care yeah. about how yeah, the yeah. color looks. You know, yeah, yeah. What they care about is completely different than what engineers like me care about. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, we're talking batteries. We're going to leave behind, at least for now, social media, uh, which we covered last week, which I really enjoyed. I hope you guys did as well. But going back to kind of deep tech, hard science, batteries. That's right, because as we move forward with this whole push to electrify everything, starting, of course, with transport, there's a really interesting kind of race for dominance happening in the background that most people are not aware of because we need to dramatically, and I mean dramatically, scale up our ability to not only source the materials we need for the batteries at the heart of electric cars and electric planes and electric boats also being worked on. We need to dramatically scale our ability to get those resources as well as the ability to manufacture these batteries that are going to go into kind of this whole new generation of transport and then beyond into energy infrastructure, etc. But the thing is today, China controls lithium ion battery production to an astounding degree. They are the vast majority of the market and the US government has made it a priority as have various European governments including the UK government to establish kind of battery independence um, in the same way that we would have thought uh, over the last century about energy independence. And, you know, all the implications around our dependence on Saudi Arabia for oil and what that meant for, you know, geopolitically, all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of, we're just at the start of this race uh, for dominance for this kind of new form of energy. And batteries are right at the heart of that. They're the key. So we're embarking on this kind of, this brave new world, batteries are in the middle of it, and we have a lot of catching up to do, which is why I wanted to bring on this week's guest, which is Vivas Kumar. He is the founder of a startup called Mitrichem. Now, Mitrichem is just over a year old. They've raised more than $20 million, and they're developing some key battery components, iron cathodes, as a first step in this grand plan to build what they reckon could be the first American battery champion amid this broader race for dominance with China for this kind of, you know, key technology at the heart of our energy transition. So really fascinating times, a really interesting company. They're very early in their kind of process. And Vivas also just has a great personal story coming from originally from India via Singapore, via Texas, and then out here to the West Coast. And a great story about how just a random tweet from a billionaire led him to start a company, raise a bunch of money, including from said billionaire, and here we are. So anyhow, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And again, it's just a really interesting kind of snapshot in time as we move toward the electrification of everything. So that is it. I will now step aside and hand you over to my conversation with Vivas Kumar of Mitrikim. Enjoy. 
Well, thank you for having me here at Mitrakem. I'm getting that right. Yeah, thank you, Danny. <laughs> so before we get into what you're doing, it's all about batteries, of course. Can we kind of set the scene? Because I think people who listen to the podcast will know that like, we've been doing a lot on climate and a lot around the electrification of kind of transport, etc. But I don't think everybody kind of quite appreciates the kind of the dynamics that are happening and what needs to happen if we're really going to kind of achieve these very grand kind of uh, goals and even just meet what, you know, Ford, GM, Tesla, Polestar, the list goes on, what everybody is planning for in terms of the electrification. So can you just give a sense of kind of where we are today in the world when you're thinking about batteries and what is going to be required? Sure. The first thing I'll say is this. Electric vehicles aren't the future. They are the present. They are absolutely here. Every single large automaker is aggressively investing in EVs. And the natural consequence of that is that they are all aggressively investing in batteries as well. So Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, which tracks the industry, they just came out earlier this week. We're recording in late April of 2022 and said that the current pipeline for gigafactories that are planned in construction and commissioning is about six terawatt hours of capacity. What does that mean? So what that means is this. Back eight years ago, there were two factories that could produce more than one gigawatt hour per year of production before the Tesla gigafactory in Nevada started production. And a tera is a thousand gigas. So you went from, you know, two factories that were making basically enough for consumer electronics and some, yeah. you know, power tools and whatnot for now, all of a sudden capacity for millions of vehicles are coming online. Well, the difficulty with that is you need to have a supply chain built to feed into those battery factories as well. So what is a battery? Well, a battery is an energy storage device and it is a combination of multiple different materials and specialty chemicals. We've got the cathodes and the anodes and the separators and the electrolytes. And every single one of these elements that I just named has to have its own supply chain being built in order to feed those six terawatt hours of battery factories as well. And the issue that we're facing right now is this is a heavily underinvested supply chain. The whole supply chain needs to grow so that we can get 10 million, 20 million, 30 million vehicles on the road every single year. So what was the figure? How many terawatt hours are now commissioned now? Well, so right now, globally, we're still at the sub-terawatt hour scale. But in terms of what's been planned and yeah. commissioned and you know in construction, there's six terawatt hours in the six pipeline. Terawatt hours. So six terawatt hours compared to less than one terawatt hour. So that's six-fold increase kind of already in train in one form or another. Exactly. And if you go back if you go back when it, to the two gigawatt hours of whatever it was five years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, so two factories with over a gigawatt hour per right. production. Right. So from that to six terawatt hours, that's, I don't know how many orders of magnitude, but it's, I mean. Well, it's a lot. Let's just put it that way, right? Like, I <laughs> yeah. mean, it's, it's, you're going from hundreds of electric vehicles mm. 10 years ago to now already millions of electric vehicles, to tens of millions of electric vehicles. And when you grow something 10x, 
doesn't matter exactly how much. It's growing a lot. It's growing fast. And people need to get involved in the industry to help it keep growing at that right. pace. Right. Because the world needs these electric vehicles. Consumers want them. Governments want them. And the companies are responding. Right. And so how did you get involved? What is Mitrichem? What are you guys doing? When did you start? What's the big idea? So how I got involved, my personal story, is I used to be the senior manager for battery materials at Tesla. So what that means is inside of a battery, there are cathodes and anodes. Yep. And put very simplistically, a battery works when a lithium atom from the cathode becomes ionized and emits electrons. And the flow of those electrons is the electricity that's generated from the battery. So at Tesla, I was responsible for sourcing the materials that went into the cathode, which are lithium, nickel, cobalt, right. aluminum. Right. You know, those are just examples of materials. But from that experience, the original ideas that formed the basis of Mitrochem um, started to percolate in my mind. And, you know, what I saw at that time was also that the industry wasn't keeping up. The supply chain wasn't keeping up. We had to build a supply chain. We had to build it fast. We had to innovate on materials so that we were ready for all of these new different segments right. of electric vehicles going on the road. And, you know, there's never been a better opportunity to build a company in the battery space because it is so sorely needed. And I just decided, you know what? I got to go out and do this. I have to go out and, and lead and just put, you know, my efforts where my talking points are. Have you ever started a company before? This is my first time starting a company. It's been a journey, but we are helped by people who have started lots of companies mm. in the past. So, And how old is Mitrochem? So Mitrochem, as of this recording, is about a year and a half old. Okay. And last year, we raised Nansing for the first time. Um, and we've got stellar investors who, like I said, have started multiple industrial companies in multiple different segments, all of whom are bonded by a mutual interest in the urgency of climate change. Right, right, right. In coming together to help us do this. How much have you raised? So, so far, we've raised $20 million. And the goal for that $20 million was to do three things. Build the lab where you and I are sitting right now. Build the team who are sitting outside of this conference room we're in right now. And build the first product, which is an iron-based cathode that can be applicable for electric vehicles. Let's take, you know, my former employer Tesla, for example. Over 50% of the vehicles that they put out into the world in Q1 of 2022 used an iron-based cathode within their batteries. And this is now starting to become a preferred technology of choice in Western mass market applications. And those are exactly the type of cathodes that we're building here as well. Is it becoming preferred just simply because the background of all of this, it seems, is that lithium has gone up whatever in terms of price, 5x, 10x, whatever it is, just skyrocketed. And nickel has gone up, I can't remember how much it is, a lot, as has copper, as has cobalt. These kind of core, the core materials you need for this battery revolution have all skyrocketed in price because of this demand. So as iron... I think it's, it would be replacing nickel. Is that right? That's right. So iron-based cathodes help you shift away from the, the need for nickel and cobalt materials specifically. And it's a huge benefit because nickel and cobalt chemicals relevant for lithium-ion batteries are in tremendous shortage. 
And those shortages are expected to continue because once again, that supply chain is just so severely underinvested. So we chose to go towards iron-based for a few reasons. Number one, it's safer. From a chemistry standpoint, the probability of a battery fire is tremendously less. Oh, really? Than it is for nickel rich. And that has to do with just how many oxygen atoms there are, if you want to get really into it, right? Because to start a fire, you need oxygen. Yeah. The second is the supply chain for an iron-based cathode is easier to source and is more readily available to source within North America, which is our first target priority market. Well, that's a really interesting point, right? Because... We've been looking at this recently, and there's a lot, all of a sudden, it's like the government, at least in America, and certainly in the UK and Europe as well, is kind of waking up to this idea of like, okay, if lithium and nickel and copper and cobalt are going to be to this century what oil was to the last, we should make sure we have the manufacturing capacity, the sourcing capacity, the, the natural resources to do that. Is that. Do you see that kind of playing out in the market? That's exactly what's happening. One example of this is the bipartisan infrastructure law in the United States, has put aside $7 billion for battery-related critical minerals supply chain buildup. Within the states. Within the states. And that's a right. very clear recognition that the United States wants to build these critical supply chains and reduce our dependence. This is no different than what happened in the 2000s and 2010s around the fracking revolution in the United States. It was born out of our desire for energy independence right. away from countries that were unfriendly to us at the time. And so as we look at future energy supply chains, the national security and the geopolitics are dictating the need for investments in these supply chains alongside consumers wanting more electric vehicles on the road. Right. And today, the kind of, again, thinking of the oil analogy, Saudi Arabia is the kind of king of oil, is China the king of lithium? Or the king of batteries. China is the king of batteries. And China is the king of battery supply chain. The majority of the world's battery supply chain capacity for relevant lithium chemicals, nickel cobalt chemicals, all flows through China. And the same is true of rare earths, right? So rare earths are not used in batteries, but they are also used in defense applications and in permanent magnets in the car. Yeah. If you look back far enough in the supply chain, you are going to see a bottleneck in the form of you know, Chinese state-backed control over some of these resources. And that is of huge concern to the Western world in a time of increased geopolitical tensions. So, you know, Danny, you mentioned nickel prices ran up. Well, one of the reasons why nickel prices ran up is because there was a particular episode with a short squeeze on the London Metal Exchange about four weeks ago from when we were recording this podcast. But the other thing that people aren't talking enough about is the world's lowest cost producer of nickel was Russia, is Russia. Norilsk Nickel. Norilsk Nickel. And that material is now no longer available for many of the players who were using it. And so I would hate to see the world continue in wars and in geopolitical contests, but this is the reality of the world that we live in. Right. And so overt dependence on any one country for the natural resources, unless that country is your own country, is not in the modus operandi of politicians. And the best way to solve that problem is to start new companies and to build those supply chains. And that's exactly what we're doing. Right. And 
So going back to what you guys are doing at this company, there's a lot of iron in the world. I used to cover mining. Mm -hmm. So I've been to the iron quadrangle in um, Brazil. I've been to kind of, is it West Africa? Yeah. In, um, in Guinea, where there is a very large deposit, which has not been developed for lots of reasons we won't get into. But it does feel like there's benefits to swapping iron for nickel. Is that basically supply chain and cost? Supply chain, cost, and safety. Right. Is it as good, though, from a, is it as efficient as, a, as nickel? You in do a take a hit on energy density at mm. the individual cell level. And isn't, so, but isn't that quite critical for batteries? So what, what, what does that mean? Well, you have battery cells and then you have battery packs. And packs are just multiple cells in parallel, right? So if you look at the base of an electric vehicle, the pack has several thousand cells inside of it. Now, nickel-rich battery cells inside of a pack will have multiple safety features built into them. Mm like flame retardant materials, interstitial fills, to make sure that if that battery cell does go into thermal runaway and start a fire, that fire can be isolated immediately. Thermal runaway, that phrase is kind of just, it's a very evocative phrase, thermal runaway. It just sounds scary. Yep. And we've all seen the pictures of like Tesla in a parking garage that all of a sudden just bursts into flame. That is what happens with nickel-rich batteries sometimes. The engineering around it has gotten much better yeah. around building these safety features in the pack so that if one cell goes into thermal runaway, it doesn't cause the other you know, 4,000 cells to go into thermal runaway. But if you look at a pack that uses these iron-based batteries, you don't need to have that, you know, that engineered safety built into it. So you just have more space available in the pack for more iron-based cells. I see, I see. And so on a pack level, what ends up happening is the individual cells themselves have lower energy density. The pack itself has the exact same energy density and the cost is still lower I than see, a nickel-rich pack. And so you were working at Tesla, doing your job, etc. And you decide to start a company. What was the reception, especially as a first-time founder and doing something that is hard, that is actually making stuff as opposed to software, which obviously investors love because it's easier and it's um, and it scales a lot faster. Well, Danny, I'm not one of these people who was born wanting to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> I am an engineer. Yeah. I wanted to solve the problem. Right. This problem of bringing more iron-based cathode capacity to North America, bringing these safer cathodes out here, um, and reducing the innovation timeline to get new cathode products to market. And so I was just thinking about how to solve these problems. And that's when I met Chamath Palihapitiya, who ended up leading our investment round. I see. Um, and he was getting into batteries at the time yeah. as well. So, you know, once again, Chamath is an example of somebody who has been involved in so many different companies from the start. And so he got to talking. He said, you know, these problems that you want to solve, you really should start a company and I'll help you do it. So that conversation... That set of conversations happened in, in early 2021. Oh, wow. And we were off to the races from there. Now, to your second question of, of why I wanted to do this. I mean, we are very, very fortunate to have the help of about 46 different investors on our cap table right now. The majority proceeds came from Social Capital. But, which is Chamath's which fund. Which is Chamath's fund. But and for people who don't had... know, Chamath, early employee at Facebook, did 
wildly well out of that, has since launched his own venture firm. He's a part owner of the Warriors. Big ups for the Warriors, keep going in the playoffs, et cetera. Um, and <laughs> yeah, he's he's uh, and he's done a bunch of SPACs over the past year as well. But any, anyway, he's that's kinda, right. And yeah. but what people don't necessarily know about as publicly is he's been involved in a lot of these types of deep technology, hard yeah. technology type companies. And you know, there is very much a, a playbook for hmm. how to build a company like this in the early days. There's no substitute for getting a great product in the world. Yeah. But you're right. Most venture capitalists will tend to, to shy away from a company like ours. But Chamath, along with the other institutional investors and angel investors who are part of our company journey thus far, these are all people who have had experience either in the battery industry or in financializing hard tech companies. And so we've gotten tremendous help from them in the process. And we're entering a world where if you want to solve climate change, it needs to be based on a confluence of bits and atoms. Software by itself will not solve climate change. Software will help you automate certain solutions towards climate change. Software will help you quantify the impacts of climate change. But the metric for success is the reduction of carbon units. Software will simply not do that by itself. And so there was a shared recognition from all of our investors who backed us last year for the first time that getting cathode powder industrialized at mass scale into production and building a North American champion to do so was a significant and critical need towards building the battery supply chain and solving climate change. Right. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So you referred to growing up not being one of those guys who was like, you know, reading The Economist at age 10 and figuring out which business you're going to launch as soon as possible. So <laughs> could you just talk about like, where are you from? Where'd you go to school? How'd you end up here in where are we? We're in Mountain View. Yeah, I am from India. I was born in a small town in India, actually at the exact same hospital where both my mom and my grandfather were born. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I grew up in Singapore. Sorry, in India, that was near Chennai? Yeah, it was near Chennai. Right. In South India. So I'm Tamil by ethnicity. Right. Grew up in Singapore. And then my folks worked in the oil and gas industry. I was gonna, I was wondering how you ended up in Singapore. So my folks, right. because they worked in the oil and gas industry, we ended up moving to Texas when I was a teenager. From Singapore to Texas? Yeah, talk about a as a, as a Tamil kid living in Singapore to Texas, how was that? Where, where in Texas? Dallas? Or Houston? Right outside of Houston in a town called Katy, Texas. I mean, it's it's no longer a town that, you know, it's 400,000 people or so live in Katy oh, wow. now. But when I moved over there, it was a very different place. It was a, it was a much smaller place than it is today. And so, yeah, tremendous culture shock. But some of the nicest people, you know, I, I still very much have strong affinity for the greater Houston area from the time that I spent over there. And I am an engineer. And after having done my engineering school, my father, who actually is the person who named Mitrichem, 
our company name. I was going to ask what the, the name is. I figured it was some kind of clever chemistry name, but maybe that's not right. Yeah, so it's it's an amalgamation of of multiple different things. Um, you know, I was looking for a cross cultural name, something that could fit multiple languages, something that was easy to pronounce and pick up. And I asked my dad, and he suggested the name Mitra. And what is Mitra? The easiest translation of this is so Mitra has a religious undertone. It's, you know, it, it refers to the sun in some of the holy texts in Hinduism. But in Hindi, Mitra means friendship. Oh, cool. So, you know, my dad names the company. But going back to, you know, I was an engineer and my parents had been in the oil and gas industry for about 40 years at that point. Wow. And I understand why they had to enter the oil and gas industry. At the time, it was the prevailing industry. And frankly, to be able to get educational opportunities in the West, right? the oil and gas industry is one of the only industries that affords those opportunities for people in developing countries in most places. Yeah. So I just want to kind of give a plug separately from this, which is I know it's very easy to demean the oil and gas industry, but we can't take away the fact that rapid oil and gas industrialization has led to where we are in many positive ways in the world. Yeah. And it's uplifted a lot of people, including my own family, mm. um, out of difficult economic circumstances and into a better future and a better life. But my dad did say to me at the time, your future will not be in oil and gas. Mm. Like, your future will be in greener pastures. And he meant that figuratively and literally. Right, 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 right. And so that's what ultimately led me to going to work at Tesla and starting that journey and you know, learning from Elon and, and being part of the tremendous revolution that was electric vehicles there. Sorry, just to go back to your parents for a second. Were they engineers or what was their, they're in the oil and gas industry. What That's were they right. doing? So dad's an engineer. My mom is an accountant, both working in oil and gas for their entire careers. Mm. And, you know, like they'll, they'll retire in the industry, but they are, you know, they've got solar on the roof. They drive well, I was going to ask, was there any like, you know, family conflict? You're like, basically I'm working on this, uh, this, technology that's you know long term yeah. going to put your industry out of business there's zero family conflict because oil and gas companies the smartest oil and gas companies are starting to transition themselves into being energy companies in general that offer multiple different energy solutions electricity being one of them but also engineering services companies that were previously mostly focused on oil and gas have now started to transition into providing engineering services for specialty chemicals for renewable energy supply chains and, you know, building wind farms even. Like, there's a natural consequence and a natural order for how the economy and labor classes and companies shift as technology revolutions occur. And we're seeing that happening now. Right, right. So when did you go to work for Tesla? What year was that? That was in 2016. So the Model 3 wasn't even out yet. I was going to say, so this is pre-production hell. Yeah, this was very much before production hell. I got there about a year before the first Model 3 rolled off the line. But even then, the sole focus of the company was let's get the model three out yeah and there's still people being like mm, michael bankrupt tesla oh yeah i mean every <laughs> every other day there was a headline about you know this company's coming out with a new car that's going to be a tesla killer or you know tesla's going to run out of cash before the first model three rolls off the line i mean i remember at that time all hands meetings was always elon telling us like if we don't get this many cars out the door for Model 3 by this month, then we're going to face the Grand Canyon of cash in this company. Mm. And, you know, where Tesla is today, it's nothing short of a miracle. And I say that with all respect 
to all of the wonderful people that I worked with over there. That we went from that dire situation to this company now being a trillion dollar company, right? Good for them. And we need more. We need more companies like that leading the charge in electrification, in climate change, for climate change to be solved. So was there a time when you were there uh, working where you were like, maybe we are, we are going to go bust. Maybe Tesla is toast. No, I never believed that because I believed so much in the technology itself. Yeah. For anybody who wondered that and who would say those types of comments to me, the one question I would ask them was, have you ever actually sat in one of these vehicles? Have you ever actually taken it for a ride? It's a tremendous experience yeah. to be inside of an electric vehicle, to feel the quietness, to just feel like you are sitting in the future as compared to an internal combustion engine vehicle. Yeah. So I was just focused on delivering the product, focused on being an engineer, doing my job and doing it well. And knowing that if you engineer a great product that can meet what your customer wants, you will succeed tremendously. And that's the same ethos that I have over here, right? Like we're not focused on anything but delivering a product, delivering it well, and being the North American champion for the battery supply chain. And a lot of our, a lot of our listeners are overseas. And there's always kind of the kind of great fascination with how Silicon Valley works. And you say you just kind of happened to run into Chamath, who's probably a billionaire. Uh, there's a lot of billionaires around here. But how did that come about? Like, how does it, you know, because it's, it's, and these things do happen where you just have a conversation with somebody and then somebody and somebody and all of a sudden you're starting a company. It's, it's an money. even more Silicon Valley story than that. <laughs> I met Chamath on Twitter. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So Chamath tweeted about batteries and I responded to him and he sent me a direct message and said, hey, I saw that, you know, you've worked on batteries in the past. Let's let's talk. And so, and his office at the time, his previous office used to be in Palo Alto. Yeah. And I was a student at Stanford University for graduate school in Palo Alto. So I literally just walked down the street to his office. I mean, it's, the, the point of the story is Silicon Valley is a very small place yeah, 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 and yeah, networks yeah. are tremendously small here. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting. I was just thinking about that because um, this is completely kind of off piste. But yesterday, Brian Chesky at Airbnb mm -hmm. was like, well, you can now work anywhere. <laughs> and he said, and you don't take a pay cut. I saw that. And it was like, wow. And, you know, like as these big companies go, smaller companies will go. And this whole idea. And so it's kind of revivify this idea of like, well, maybe Silicon Valley isn't going to be the center of the universe when it comes to startups and technology and all these things. I mean, I don't buy that necessarily, at least for, for the near term. And what you are doing is different because you're doing hard tech science. I imagine everybody needs to be here, but I just thought it, it's an interesting moment when you start looking at these big companies being like, we do not care where you work. And what I'll say is this. Talent is universal, mm -hmm. right? Access, unfortunately, is not. We should be improving access to opportunity everywhere. But what I enjoy about being in Silicon Valley is, in physics, there's a concept called Brownian motion, which is... Brownian motion? Brownian motion. Okay. So put simplistically, it's atoms are colliding with each other all the time, and they're causing more collisions and more collisions and more entropy, right? Right. The reason why Mitrachem was able to get started was because we came together with an idea to fulfill a market need that worked. But the way that capital entered this company 
was through the act of Brownian motion. So going beyond Chamath, you know, I mentioned the story of Twitter and being able to walk down the street to his office. Of the other 46 investors who got involved with our company, almost every single one of them ended up joining our company through Brownian motion because, you know, somebody told somebody like, hey, look into this company who told somebody look into this company. And all of a sudden, you know, we had people coming together and saying to us, hey, we want to be part of your journey. We recognize what you're doing in the battery supply chain is important mm. and let us come and invest in you. And this story is not just about me, Danny. This is many, many startup founder CEOs will tell you the same thing happened in terms of how they either got their company financialized, how they hired you know, a, a key executive who transformed their business, how they were able to get a customer lined up. So many of these interactions within Silicon Valley still happen within closed networks and closed circles. Well, that's what's really interesting is that, and I don't know how you, if Chamath was like the, the biggest atom knocking all the other atoms and you found all of these people. Well, but... it was a combination. So Professor Will Chu from the material science department at Stanford is a co-founder of ours. And he is the undisputed expert worldwide in the field of applying machine learning right. to speed up battery materials innovation. And when people found out that Will was going to be co-founding this company on that field, you know, there was a lot of interest in that, right? Obviously, my background of having done supply chain at Tesla, I met a lot of people who ended up, you know, a lot of people who were people with whom I did business who now ended up becoming investors in our company as well. Well, that's what's also really interesting about this place is, you know, you can't swing a cat and like not hit a, you know, a casual millionaire or somebody who's done decently well, who's now becoming an investor or is a billionaire or is it. And there's just the, the amount of kind of that flywheel of people who have done well, who are just going right back in and investing that money. And there's just the mindset, the willingness to be like, you're sounds like what you're going to do is super hard. Yeah. We'll give you whatever half a million or a million or whatever it ends up being. That's, I feel what makes this place unique. Absolutely right. The tolerance for failure, the tolerance for ethical failure. Let's be clear about this, right? Because I think um, you know, we're, we're seeing headlines frequently about Silicon Valley failures due to a lack of ethics. And yeah. you know, that's unacceptable regardless of what geography you're in. But capital will always rush towards the best ideas and capital will always tolerate a certain amount of risk. And there is more risk tolerance here in Silicon Valley. I've had the pleasure of you know, now having done businesses and, and traveled all over the world, you know, every continent, every major sort of financial hub or industry hub, you know, London, New York, Hong Kong, Singapore, you want to name it. And I've never seen as much tolerance for failure and as much optimism and belief in the future as in Silicon Valley. And it's very inspiring. Right. So just turning to what you guys are doing here, you, you mentioned uh, this powder is that effectively the secret sauce of what you are making here? If I was to go into your lab right now, what would I see? What is the kind of, what are you making? What does it look like? The product that we put out into the world is a cathode powder, okay. which can be used in batteries that go into electric vehicles. The secret sauce, what makes us unique, is an in-house advantage of machine learning to significantly reduce by over 90% the time and money needed to get to a new product. How does that work? How that works is this. <laughs> How we measure it, it's called a design-build test cycle. Okay. So you design a cathode powder, mm -hmm. you build the powder, put it into a cell, and then you test the cell to see how it performs. 
And what you want to do is you want to design new powders that are continuously pushing the boundary mm -hmm. for metrics like energy density, cycle life, safety, cost, et cetera. You know, there's, there's multiple metrics that you want to optimize for based on what the customer wants. Typically, it takes over 10 years to invent a new battery material. And there's notable examples of battery materials companies today that started 10 years ago and tremendous on them for putting in that much time to innovate. That cannot be the paradigm for the upcoming 10 years. What has worked in the past will not work in the future. And so what we can do, based on the work that Professor Will Chu has done in the last almost 10 years at Stanford, is apply a certain set of machine learning algorithms to help us get through that design-build test cycle within one month or less. So does that effectively mean you're kind of like, this has all happened digitally? In other words, you're having a model of this molecule or this new type of powder, whatever it may be, that you're running through all these models effectively rather than sitting at the lab bench being like, okay, we're going to painstakingly make this and then test it. Oh, there's no substitute for actually making the materials themselves. So there's the difference between simulation, visualization, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. We are not trying to create and recreate chemical processes in a computer because there's too many variables within the system that is a battery cell. You must physically make the battery cell and the powders. There is no substitute for that. Artificial intelligence will predict for you the exact material that you need to synthesize. We're not there yet. Nobody is there within chemical systems for that level of artificial intelligence. I think there's a lot of interesting work that OpenAI is doing right now mm. that can be applicable to this field in the future. But where we are at right now is machine learning, which helps you speed up the process right. of getting to the answer. Sorry. So what is it? Yeah. How is it speeding it up then? What is the bottleneck it is getting rid of? The biggest bottleneck is in battery life cycle testing. Okay. So how you life cycle test is you charge and you discharge a battery. Charge drain, charge drain, charge drain. Charge drain, charge drain, charge drain for like 10 months. Yep. Well, what Will has been able to show, and this is publicly available peer-reviewed research, is instead of charging and draining 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 cycles, you can do it for just a couple hundred cycles. And then with a high level of fidelity, predict what Model the final results will be. Right. I now, see. you need three things for machine learning to be successful. You need to have an underlying data set that's robust upon which you can unleash an algorithm, which is element number two. And then element number three is you need to have an idea of what you're actually testing for. We have all three of these elements right. under this roof. And in addition to that, Danny, we also can do physically every single step of the design-build test process all within 10 steps of each other. We're not reliant on having to send out our material to a third-party vendor where we have no control over how they're going to make the cells. I mean, batteries are very sensitive. They're very complicated. They're ultra stingy. You know, controlling how they are made is most of the battle. And so the combination of being able to physically do all the steps and having this machine learning advantage to reduce the time needed for lifecycle testing, we can just get through more experiments faster. We can get to a new material faster. Got you. Yeah, because that's the whole history of batteries, right? It's been painfully small incremental improvements over many decades. There hasn't been like, there have been very few step changes. Is that fair? That is fair to say. And incremental compounding gains lead to the exponential result. It's hard to see it on any day-to-day, -day, but when you look back over the last 10 years, I mean, 10 years ago, right, we were still looking at 
like laptop battery cells being used in the Tesla Roadster. Yeah. Right. And now we have dedicated battery cells that can last 20 plus years within today's, you know, BMW i3 or Chevy Volt or Ford Mustang Mach-E. Like there's so much innovation that has happened from compounding incremental improvements. Mm. And that's why I am very optimistic about the next 10 years as well for batteries. The million mile battery. Exactly. Crazy idea. It's not a crazy idea. It's not a crazy idea because we're not talking about individual cells over there. The million mile battery will be a battery pack where there will be improvements on materials, on cell design, on pack design, and on power management software. The incremental improvements in all of these categories will add up to creating that million mile battery. Right. One of the challenges of this kind of transition in which we are in the midst of is the typical life of a of a car is 16 years. That's how long you buy a car, you have it for at least 16 years in America. So like trying to kind of get that turnover is really, that's a big hurdle. But when you think about this next generation of EVs in five, you know, four, five, six, seven years, however long it takes, and this idea of a million mile battery, there's a potential there to kind of lock in zero emission transport kind of forever pretty quickly if you have a car that's going to last effectively forever. Well, I actually think that we're going to get to a future where you're going to disaggregate the business model of the battery from the car body. And after 10 years, you're going to hold on to your battery pack and just substitute out a newer, shinier You're going to hold on to the battery rather than the car. Does the customer actually care what happens inside that battery? Absolutely not. They just want it to work, but they care about how the steering wheel looks. They care about how the seats look. They care about how the color looks, you know? What they care about is completely different than what engineers like me care about. Right, 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 right. That's interesting. Well, we shall see. So what is it just in terms of what happens next for you guys? I mean, obviously, you're, you're a young company. What is the kind of the next mountain you're trying to climb in terms of, you know, achievements or partnering with somebody, getting customers, getting scientific advancements. What's what are you working on? We have been completely focused on product development and we are happy to say that we are making state of the art commercially relevant powders right now. So, you know, this happened about 3 weeks ago and customers have already come to us to express interest, but we've been the ones pushing them away up until now. So now our focus is shifting into getting to you know, larger scale production, getting into pre-pilot capacity, and then ultimately to a mini plant, and then finally to a commercial scale plant in North America to be a meaningful part of that supply chain over here. And we're thrilled to see just how much interest there's been you know, in growing a battery supply chain from us and other similar companies. And we're just excited to be part of that electrification future. Yeah. With a fair wind at your back, how long before you have like a a big plant. Well, that will be completely driven by our major customers. Where we're going to be in North America, how much we produce, all of that is still being worked out. Luckily, we're in pretty deep discussions with a couple of major sort of household name OEMs on this topic right now. And so, once those discussions are over and actually reach a critical mass, you know, we'll be putting out a press release about right. how we're thinking about our commercial scale plant. But the one thing that's true is the demand is there. The demand is absolutely there. Now it's just a question of supply and what makes sense from an engineering standpoint in terms of how big a plant we want to build in order to feed that you know household name customer. 
Well, exciting times. I, w- I wish you all the luck. Well, thank you very much. And I'm just very thrilled every time I hear that people are interested in learning about climate change and learning about the solutions. And this is why you do not have to have any experience with batteries to come and work at Metrochem. Mm. So if you're out there and you're listening and you're motivated to wanting to solve climate problems, we would love to have you come and join our team. Cool. There's a plug. Everybody, you heard it here first. Great. Well, look, I really appreciate the time. And um, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Danny. Yeah. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Vivas. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings and the reviews. Those always really do help. So do take a moment and please um, just jot one down. I'd really appreciate it. It helps other people find the show. And I'll be writing about, I think I might be writing about TikTok this weekend in the paper um, and some other stuff. So do check that out as well at thetimes.co.uk. You can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Or you can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Thank you as ever, as ever, as ever for listening. Have a fabulous weekend, and we'll talk to you next week.